Welcome to the Key Wealth Matters weekly podcast, where we casually ramble on about important topics, including the markets, the economy, human ingenuity, and almost anything under the sun, giving you the keys to unlock the mysteries of the markets and investing. Today is Friday, May 12th, 2023. I'm your host, Brian Peterangelo. Welcome to the podcast. As we head into this weekend, we'd like to offer our best wishes to honor and celebrate all the mothers who help to guide and influence our lives. We hope you have a great day and a happy Mother's Day. With me today, I'd like to introduce our panel of investing experts here to provide their insights on this week's market activity. George Mateo, Chief Investment Officer. Steve Haight, Head of Equities. Rajiv Sharma, Head of Fixed Income. As a reminder, a lot of great content is available on key.com slash wealth insights, including updates from our Wealth Institute on many different subjects, and especially our Key Questions article series, addressing a relevant topic for investors each Wednesday. In addition, if you have any questions or need more information, please reach out to your financial advisor. Taking a look at this week's economic news, the calendar was fairly light for the week with the major theme being that of inflation. So if we look at the overall consumer price index of inflation, known as CPI, from the year-over-year percentage change from this month versus last month, we see a moderate sign of cooling. Last month, ending in March, it was 5.0% year-over-year. And this week, when the data was released for April, it was 4.9% year-over-year, so a moderate sign of cooling. In addition, if we exclude the volatile food and energy subcomponents, known as core CPI, we also saw the same one-tenth of a decline in the overall read from 5.6% in March to 5.5% in April. Most all of the major subcomponents, food, energy, goods, and services, also showed declines with the exception for goods, which had a minor tick up. And in addition, shelter, the cost of living, continues to be high at 8.1% for the month of April, which we're looking for more declines here in the next few months during the summer to see if housing prices and the cost of shelter actually come down, given the fact that CPI is a major component in terms of shelter being about 33% of the overall read. So we're looking for that particular component to come down as a driver of overall CPI. In addition, the PPI, or Producer Price Index of Goods, also was released this particular week and showed cooling signs as well. Switching to the employment front, we have the initial unemployment claims that came out yesterday, which showed 242,000 initial unemployment claims filed for the last week of April. In addition, if you look at the last few weeks, the number has vacillated from about 230,000 to 245,000 back and forth for the last couple of weeks, again showing some moderate signs of increase in the overall labor market in terms of initial unemployment claims, which as a leading indicator, we will continue to watch as those numbers either plateau or continue to escalate as a sign of challenges within the overall labor market coming forward here in the next few months. And finally, looking over in Washington, D.C., the debt ceiling talks that were supposed to occur were actually postponed to next week, so we'll have to continue to have a conversation around this topic as we talk to our panelists. So overall, George, what are your thoughts on the economic data that came out this week? What do you think it means for the economy, and what do you think it means for investors? Well, Brian, I think uh, if we take a step back and kind of look at what's happened this week, I think the thing that caught my attention earlier in the week was uh, some of the credit standard uh, measures that we look at. We've talked about this from time to time as well. This is not as widely reported as, say, the employment rate or the inflation statistics, which I'll get to in a second. But credit standards are kind of a way to assess uh, the overall 
availability of credit. And, and credit's a pretty big driver for the economy. I mean, without credit, we really can't have um, an economy, basically, because I think we need credit to, to finance opportunities, finance obligations, houses, businesses, and so forth. So uh, the economy, needless to say, is pretty dependent on credit. And I'd say, yes, the overall message was it's, it wasn't as bad as feared, but I think it's still pretty early. So the survey that we kind of referenced here looks at the percent of bank that are actually tightening credit. So the higher the number, it suggests that more banks are actually tightening credit. The number that we saw last quarter, and that was actually released in February, so kind of pre-banking situation, pre-banking crisis, if you will, that number was at 44%. So 44% of banks were actually suggesting that they were tightening their credit standards. Today, I guess three months later, that number did go up, but didn't go up as much as I thought it did, I thought it would rather, it rose to about 46%. So if you can take a step back, you know, this, this number over time has evolved. It's, uh, it's moved around quite a bit. Uh, that's probably why people don't pay as much attention to it. But uh, you know, to kind of put that in context, in, in March of 2020, that number spiked to 71%. Uh, not surprisingly, that was kind of in the peak of the COVID collapse, if you will. And then if you look back further in time, in 2008, it kind of started around 30% in the first quarter of 2008, jumped quickly to 55% in the second half of 2008. And then when things were really in panic mode, if you will, it left over to over 80%. So I think we might have some ways to go before the full story is told. But at the same time, you are you are seeing kind of some bifurcation in the banking sector as well, meaning some banks are doing relatively well and pretty stable. Other banks are having some issues. So it's probably going to be with us for a while longer. The good news is that interest rates have come down. We've talked about that. Rajiv has been discussing that um, um, for many weeks now. And we've seen that continue to be the case. And that actually provides some relief to some of the banks in terms of their overall balance sheet strength. So I think that um, the, the, the net net is that, that things are kind of tightening a little bit, uh, but there might be some glimmers of hope there. We've also talked about maybe the next shooting drop. And one thing that we talked about, one of our colleagues actually wrote a really great piece um, about the, the commercial real estate market. So Mike Schroeder had a piece out this week, and I think it's really worth mentioning. And here too, maybe the story, the headline is that maybe it's not as bad as fear. Yeah, I, I think there, there's probably some, some pressure on, on credit availability, but the overall real estate market itself is pretty large. And it's also very diverse, which I think kind of gets overlooked. And sometimes when people talk about real estate, they talk about it as one um, homogeneous asset class, and it really isn't. It's a very diverse asset class. There are some big numbers. And so the overall market, I think, for commercial estate is some $20 trillion. There's roughly $3 trillion that is financed. So you consider that roughly $3 trillion of debt outstanding. And you know that debt's going to get repriced at higher rates, and that also provides some challenges. But I think at the same time, real estate has proven itself to reinvent itself. Um, you know, so I think we can kind of see evidence of that in the retail sector, for example, where retail has gone through a big change over the past several years for, for many reasons. But um, but overall, again, I think this is not going to be a, a systemic issue, but I think it's going to probably put further pressure on um, on credit. Um, also, I kind of note that the the um, the job numbers were out this week. Uh, in terms of the, the, the people applying for uh, early early employment claims, those numbers actually were pretty um, pretty disappointing in the sense they rose more than expected. And so again, there too, I think we're trying to see some, some some small pressure in the labor market. And then you talked about inflation. Well, the bottom line I think is that inflation is still pretty pretty sticky. Uh, we saw some improvement there, but if you look at some of the numbers, it's, it doesn't seem like we're maybe making as much progress as people would like. Uh, just looking at the headline numbers, for example, if you take what, just overall inflation numbers. They did drop from the prior month. I think the prior month they were just under five, and now they're just slightly even more under five, but not really haven't budged that much. And that's still quite a bit ahead of where the Fed would like to be at, at 2%. So I think the Fed might consider pausing here. Um, you know, I think they've got to kind of digest what I think that's going on. But at the same time, I don't think they're likely to pivot anytime soon and, and cut rates. So overall, I think this is a pretty tricky time for investors. 
And I think given that, I think you want to probably kind of rebalance yourself and kind of reorient yourself to some key tenants. So with those, I think about equities. You know, equities are really the growth engine of your portfolio. So you need to have some exposure to stocks and, and equities more specifically, more broadly, if you want to grow your portfolio over time. Bonds that we talked about can provide some 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 some, 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 some stability. So they they act as some of a ballast towards a portfolio, and we're actually seeing evidence of that uh, these days as well. Whereas we've said before, there's now income and fixed income again, and cash actually can provide some support too, in the sense that it actually has you know some attractive merits now that that cash is actually yielding close to five percent, but you know, at the same time those yields will come down as the Fed considers perhaps lowering interest rates next year. So overall, I do think that there's there's still a reason that you want to own risk assets such as stocks and high quality corporate bonds. And within that, I think quality is one of those features that I think makes a lot of sense. But Steve, what do you kind of think about when you think about actually investing on behalf of our, our clients using that quality lens that you apply in your portfolios? Uh, we, George, you know, we we measure quality in terms of the way the overall portfolio aggregates together. So you know, we don't necessarily think that every single stock that we own on behalf of our clients has to check every single box for and be a high quality issue. You know, there are times where you want to own things that have balance sheets that are are weaker. Um, and typically as well, uh, there are also many commodity producers who, because it, it, and industrial companies, because of the nature of their business, their balance sheets are, are less clean than say a technology company that doesn't have any debt. So, you know, there are things like this to consider, but, you know, in aggregate, you know, we like to see, uh, companies in our portfolio in aggregate show less debt to total capital, um, higher return on. Uh, assets, higher return on equity, things like this. And, and you know, what we've shown over time is that um, our portfolios have, have displayed those characteristics. The one thing too, though, that I will say is that uh, you tend to pay up for quality in the market um, and you end up paying maybe a, a couple uh, PE or, or um, enterprise value to EBITDA valuation turns more uh, for quality than you do for others, but there there are reasons. There's reasons for that. I mean, those companies have have tended to do very well. You know, well, one thing that we tell clients is that you know if you look at quality and the reason why we like it in the equity space, um, is because quality does well across three of the four phases of the market cycle. If you think that the market cycle is broken down into to recovery, um, uh, maturation. Uh, peaking and then kind of like a recession, if you were to draw like a sine wave. Um, the only part of the market cycle where quality underperforms is coming out of a recessionary trough. And that's where the cyclicals and, and lots of the stuff that has leverage, the weakest stuff outperforms um, in that part of the cycle. But otherwise, um, data shows that historically quality does well every other part of the market cycle. So typically what we try to do um, is if we think that we're coming out of a cycle trough, we'll tilt the portfolio a little less quality um, in order to pick up some of that performance from some of the lower quality assets. But it, but we want to maintain quality throughout the cycle because it does well throughout the cycle. And then same for you, Rajiv. I mean, we've talked about quality a lot but inside fixed income. How do you think about using quality as a way in which to express your views for portfolios? Yes, George, we've talked about this quite a bit, and I think it's very important to highlight it again. High quality within corporate bonds and uh, within other security asset classes is extremely important uh, for times of distress. I mean, we're talking about uh, the sentiment that there will be a recession 
you want to have somewhat of a safety play when it comes to market distress. And that safety play is not only buying AAA rated bonds, it's really buying those bonds that are well capitalized, that are extremely liquid issues. These are the bonds that, uh, you know, you could even have a triple B plus bond as long as high quality in the sense that it's very liquid and you can move that paper if there were times of distress. We've seen it in the past during other recessions. We've seen it in the past whenever there's any market stress on the market, you do see these bonds uh, perform better, uh, the high quality bonds. You do see that they're able to get a bid on the market uh, to get these bonds moved if you had to raise liquidity for some reason. And you also see uh, these bonds being more resilient towards rating actions that we've seen in the past. When there's times of distress in the market, you do see uh, rating agencies start to really get, if you will, trigger happy. And you could see a lot of uh, bonds start to get downgraded. Sectors themselves can get downgraded. Having high quality bonds, uh, which we like A-rated or better, those bonds tend to really outperform during times of distress. I agree with uh, Steve's sentiment that when you come out of a recession, that's also going to be a part of a credit cycle as well. And you will see it start to gravitate towards taking on more risk in the corporate bond sector. So you could start seeing triple Bs come more into favor. Right now, just because of rating migrations, triple Bs right now represent 54% of the investable universe in investment rate. And so it's it's one of those areas that you have to still play triple Bs in order to you know mark yourself against an index. But even within those triple Bs, you're looking for those high quality triple Bs that are well capitalized, have great liquidity profiles, have done all the right things on their balance sheets. We've had rates for low for uh, low for so long that those type of issuers have really taken advantage. They've shored up their balance sheets. They've done all the right things. They've created a stockpile of cash. They've done cash deals in, in M&A transactions. They've done all the right things. They're being rewarded for it in the market. And when you see those new issues come to the market, you do see a lot of investors get very excited when they see higher quality paper. So Steve, finishing up, we always appreciate your observations on what's happening within the markets, including maybe the banking sector as well as the energy sector. What are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, first thing when you think about the market, it's kind of funny to just flip open a chart and see the S&P 500 for all the puts and takes that we've had, all the debt ceiling this, banking stuff that, Fed this, Fed that, jobs this, jobs that. The S&P 500 is within uh, a hair's breadth of being exactly where it was a month and a half ago. So literally six weeks of choppiness back and forth doing nothing. So it's been a year. I mean, the whole year's been like that. I mean, the last 12 months. I mean, what do you It does kind of feel that way, George. It, it does like kind the last of feel 12 that way. months. I mean, yeah, we've just gone nowhere. But like, it's like the watching the paint dry uh, to, to come in and watch the Bloomberg terminal on a daily basis. But like, you know, I think that the banking situation, um, look, I, I, I don't, I don't think we're done with this yet. You know, we, we, we continue to see, um, individual banks, which I'm not going to mention, uh, pop up in the news every once in a while having issues with their deposit bases. Um, they tend to be smaller ones concentrated in, in California. So at least right now it hasn't spread um, to the rest of the country. But, you know, I think that this continues to be a, a lingering issue out there that we're going to have to uh, deal with as, as we head through uh, the lower liquidity period of time in the summer. Um, energy markets, you know, energy markets is kind of funny. We've seen uh, crude oil continue to to drift lower um, as the uh, as the global economy probably has had less of a robust recovery. I mean, China has had a really kind of a fits and starts in terms of of its recovery coming back out of post COVID. 
Um, so, you know, I think that maybe we've seen a little bit less robust on the demand side. And, um, you know, I think the stocks have sold off, uh, have sold off a little bit this year. They're the worst performing sector in the S&P 500 year to date. Um, if you look at the growth and in inflation configuration, they're expected to do so. So, you know, I, I don't think that we think that we're surprised by that. Uh, we still see value there longer term, uh, but definitely it's been a tough year for energy. Well, thanks for the conversation today, George, Stephen, Rajiv. We appreciate your insights. And thanks to our listeners for joining us today. Be sure to subscribe to the Key Wealth Matters podcast through your favorite podcast app. As always, past performance is no guarantee of future results, and we know your financial situation is personal to you. So reach out to your relationship manager, portfolio strategist, or financial advisor for more information, and we'll catch up with you next week to see how the world and the markets have changed and provide those keys to help you achieve your financial success. The Key Wealth Matters podcast is produced by the Key Wealth Institute. The Key Wealth Institute is comprised of financial professionals representing key entities, including key private bank, key bank institutional advisors, key private client, and key investment services. Any opinions, projections, or recommendations contained herein are subject to change without notice and are not intended as individual investment advice. This material is presented for informational purposes only and should not be construed as individual tax or financial advice. Bank and trust products are provided by Key Bank National Association, a member of FDIC and Equal Housing Lender. Key Private Bank and Key Bank Institutional Advisors are part of Key Bank. Investment products, brokerage, and investment advisory services are offered through Key Investment Services, LLC, or KISS, a member of FINRA, SIPC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Insurance products are offered through Key Corp Insurance Agency USA Incorporated or KIA. KISS and KIA are affiliated with KeyBank. Investments in insurance products are not FDIC insured, not being guaranteed, may lose value, not a deposit, not insured by any federal or state government agency. KeyBank and its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. Individuals should consult their personal tax advisor before making any tax-related investment decision. This content is copyrighted by KeyCorp 2023.